Hello, I'm Daniel. And I'm Liz. And welcome to A Dose of Dizzy. Your accessible but digestible dose of vestibular research. Hello everyone, happy October, welcome back. We've got a lot of things to celebrate this episode. Firstly, being that it's Audiology Awareness Month, so hello to all the audiology students and audiologists. And it's also National Physical Therapy Month. I know we have some physical therapists who also listen to this podcast. So shout out to all of you people who are working on dizziness. Yes. Welcome, everyone. And also um, one of our our third actually big uh, um, thing that we want to announce today is it is our 12th episode. So, um, yeah, we've been now doing this for a year and we're super excited for everyone um, and the podcast for sticking it around and uh you know thanks again for for sticking with us um this time and actually four things it is uh fall it's actually oh, my fall. favorite yes, yes. my favorite season so same happy fall to classic midwesterner yes you're not actually he's from california <laughs> how, how are you I, even I, celebrating but you know what i'm i'm now appreciating fall that the much seasons. more i'm know, seeing it with i'm seeing back. it with just brand new eyes and i think uh I think that's why I love it so much. But anyway, thanks again. Yes. We are excited because we are actually going to do some planning for season two. We will be taking one month off. So there will be no November 2021 episode. We will be back December 1st. And we we were talking almost for like an hour about just how things have been going. Uh, We would love to hear your feedback. If this has been useful for you, what has been useful, what hasn't. Uh, we're trying to figure out how we want to structure the next year. Yeah, no, we've we've been, you know, brainstorming some different and new exciting things for season two. And, you know, we want to incorporate your your feedback into that. So um, be on the lookout on our Instagram for some questions and just yep. information gathering um, from everyone out there. We're data people, so we got to do a little bit of research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, don't be too harsh. We do this in our free time. It's 7 p.m. We both worked <laughs> a full day, so, you know, be nice. I'm just kidding. Well, today we are excited. We actually did ask on our Instagram a few different ideas for what we could potentially do this episode on and really one that won out, which is great because it's a good point is evaluating both the case history aspect of a typical vestibular appointment and also looking at questionnaires, what questionnaires you should be giving your patients. You know, these are two made, you know, just such important components to the vestibular function test. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the case history, of course, is is super important. We'll go through all the details. But overall, it's it's just a really nice way for you to then begin to to generate a hypothesis of what is actually going on with that patient before even testing starts. So two yeah. su- super important um, areas that we're going to cover today, and we're excited about it. I always joke with my students that the case history is where you actually figure out what's going on, and then your there testing you is to provide the evidence for what your hypothesis is. So yeah, we'll go through some different aspects of a typical case history. Um, that being said, you know, it's almost, and I actually was reading one of the Vanderbilt Journal Club articles that's on Audiology Online, and I'll make sure to put this in the notes somewhere. 
Um, but they were discussing about how a vestibular case history is almost like a decision tree. So if the patient says this, I'm going to ask this. If they said no to this, here's where I go. And that's really, you know, when I'm with a patient, that's how my mind thinks is, is if they say this, then maybe I ask these three questions. And if not, then I don't need to worry about that. And that's, the, I think, the most important thing about a case history is being super comprehensive, but also being very flexible to change what you may be asking about based on what the patient tells you, which is hard. It's really hard. Right. You know, that's that flexibility component. Yeah. You know, it's nice to have that structure piece. Um, you know, I, I sort of, my brain functions on that same very, um, that very same way, but you know, like, like everything else, you may get thrown a curveball every now and then, and you sort of have to have to take and follow where that patient leads you as well. Yes. So, you know, one of the first things I usually ask about is what what it felt like, uh, what the sensation of dizziness, which is a really overarching term, feels like to the patient. Because it's, you know, it's interesting. Dizziness is so subjective. It means something different to every single person. For some people, dizziness is true vertigo, as we call it, which is room spinning, uh, dizziness and actually vertigo the definition is any sense of movement or sensation of movement it doesn't necessarily have to be a true spinning sensation it can be lightheadedness or feelings of pre-syncope where someone could almost pass out an imbalance like they could fall or some sort of combination you know some disorders have multiple uh, combinations of these sensations right. and you know some um, patients out there it's important to also remember some patients may describe vertigo as a tilting um, you know, maybe in, things in their environment are just tilted, not necessarily spinning. And so there's a lot of different characteristics that somebody can describe. And that's the first thing that we're going to talk about is what are the characteristics of this sensation? For sure. And I typically, you know, want to know how long each episode lasts, if it is an episode. So does it come and go? Is it episodic or is it pretty constant or chronic? And if it comes and goes, you want to know pretty discreetly how long those episodes are. Because even from the time course of their symptoms, you can pretty much determine what categories of disorders it may be. So seconds versus minutes versus hours, day-long episodes, and chronic disorders. Right. And, um, you know, there are, aside from the time course, um, just to sort of jump back to that characteristics or that sensation piece, one of the the first things that I love to ask patients and it's, and it, you know, causes them to think a little bit more. Uh, but it's, can you describe your dizziness without using the word dizzy? And, um, you know, that is one question that I've always, um, tried to try to ask every patient and it, it, I've had some success with, you know, cause it really helps them think, okay, what sensation am I actually feeling? Yeah. I've had patients who are like, I don't know, it's just dizzy. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> but sometimes I even with kids, you know, I'll ask, do you feel it in your head or in your stomach? Because that, you know, even breaking it down of like, where do you feel this dizziness? Because some people it's a nausea sensation. Some people it's visual effects. So sometimes you have to break it down like that. Sure. So um, we, we just talked about, Liz just talked about time course. You know, the different time course is very important that could give you some idea of what's going on, but also what are the associated factors or other ear-related symptoms that the patient may be having? Are they experiencing things like hearing loss, um, you know, during these episodes? Is there, 
you know, any type of um, oral fullness or pressure happening, tinnitus, you know, any sensitivities to either sound, pressure, anything like that, migraines, headaches, um, or feelings of like they're going to faint. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, in some of these factors that can come along, I always say, you know, what else do you notice at the same time as the dizziness? Because some things come before the dizziness, some during, and some as an after effect. And that can be really helpful to determine, you know, what's going on. For example, with the hearing loss aspect, you know, some people experience a one-time hearing loss if it's a labyrinthitis situation, or maybe, you know, some sort of neuroma situation. But They'll have more of a fluctuating hearing loss if it's a Meniere's. The third thing we want to keep track of or ask the patient when doing a case history is, you know, was there any precipitating event that occurred prior to their symptoms? Did they experience a head injury? Did they have any type of uh, viral infection? Um, You know, when did it start? What made it start? These types of questions can, can also give you some insight as you know, what is going on with the patient. Yeah. And even more recently, COVID has been something I've been asking about because there's been some dizziness associated with the beginning of that. Um, Along with that, you know, for especially episodic dizziness, knowing what provokes it, is there anything you can do that can bring on the dizziness? I tend to ask that question of my patients. If you could bring, if you could do something right now with your head position, your body position, what would you do? And some people say, oh, there's nothing I can do. It's completely spontaneous and random. For others, they know a certain head position that can cause it, which you're obviously your uh, index for suspicion for BPBV, for example, would go up way high. Some people say loud sounds or pressure changes. Maybe it's weather-related changes, medications, diet, certain lifestyle things. Some people, it's standing up quickly makes me dizzy. And then you start thinking, well, what things in the ear would cause that? Probably not much. Maybe something more related to blood pressure. So that can really help you narrow down what other questions you may want to ask. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, with regard to... Other types of things that may cause, I mean, you want to check, you know, how is, especially if they're a migraine patient or, you know, have, you know, have headaches on a regular basis, you know, are they, are they eating at the same time every day? Are they getting enough sleep? Like, how is their sleep quality? Do they wake up rested? You know, these types of um, questions can complement the, you know, some of the, the core components that you're trying to get at. Yeah. And then typically, you know, What's kind of interesting, what I love about vestibular is you dive into a lot of things that are outside of the ears. Um, And it's important that you understand it for a really comprehensive case history. So you may want to ask about neck and back issues because there's cervical related influences on dizziness. Um, And you just want to know for your testing. Numbness and tingling in the feet. Neuropathy can affect a certain type of imbalance. So it's good to know about that. History of falls and just in general, their medical history. We need to be aware of maybe possible cardiovascular risks for dizziness, neurological issues, etc. So, yeah, we've we've touched on several different things that relate to the second system of balance, right? That's somatosensory, that numbness and tingling. But let's also ask about their vision. How is yep. their vision? Because um, that's the other third major component of, you know, someone's overall balance. So make sure we touch on the systems of balance, like Liz had mentioned, uh, outside of the ear. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing to 
think about with a case history is some vestibular patients may have multiple disorders. So it does get a little messy and you have to be the one who keeps it in line. I think that's really difficult to learn with a patient. But for example, if you were taking a case history of a positional vertigo person, you may hear that they are having you know, some dizziness when they lay down in bed or when they bend over to tie their shoes. And you need to ask, you know, what does it feel like? How long does it last? When did it start? But this BPVV person may also be a result of a neuritis. So it's maybe important to ask, have you ever had spinning lasting hours? You know, that's important for you to know. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, there there was a recent study. I can't think of it off the top of my head. But um, 40 to 50% of patients that are coming into your clinic will have some type of comorbidity. So, um, you know, it's not always just that one isolated mm-hmm. neuritis or BPPV. Sometimes your patients are going to come in and they're going to have two things going on. For sure. And, uh, you know, I think we'll talk about this in questionnaires, but even psychiatric overlays of anxiety depression or they may have cardiovascular impacts but also bpvv you know there's a lot of things that can come at the same time um and so it's just important that you get a really comprehensive history you obviously need to be brief because you do a lot of testing uh but be as brief and discreet as possible it's helpful you know i i know we talk in the beginning of audiology school about open versus closed-ended questions I think there's a place for both of those in the vestibular case history. You may start more open and then get really into those closed-ended questions of yes, no, how long does this last, uh, really trying to narrow down what's going on. So now that we've talked about case history, we're going to now focus and switch gears on the second major component of this episode, and that is questionnaires, um, or more specifically, self-report questionnaires. So... Why would we give somebody a questionnaire? We, we've just done case history. What is the point of that? Well, we, have, we know now that um, studies have shown that, physical, that the patient's physical impairments necessarily correlate with the patient's self-report handicap. And so by giving, administering a questionnaire, we can tap into um, a, another realm of the patient's problem. Um, that we're trying to assess, you know, yes, we have all of these fancy tools where, but the patient is not just 10 vestibular end organs. They are a whole person. And so we're trying to um, measure and quantify this other area that may be affecting them in their daily life. Um, secondly, it could, you know, help lead to a, a, a correct diagnosis or a certain diagnosis um, as you administer a questionnaire. Um, and lastly, it can be used to quantify the effectiveness of a treatment. Yeah, uh, many of our, yep, many of our colleagues in physical therapy use certain questionnaires. May, they may give a questionnaire pre and post treatment, and that really allows them to quantify the effectiveness of that treatment. I think this is going to be a really big aspect in audiology in the future, too. I know the medical systems are really being pushed for subjective patient-reported outcomes from their healthcare, and I think these questionnaires are going to be critical for audiology moving forward to assess. I know our clinic is, um, we always give the DHI prior to being seen, and then we'll see them for follow-up visits after physical therapy to reassess abnormalities, and we re-administer the DHI because not only to the physician can we say their test results are better, but they're also feeling better, and they notice that change. So it's kind of a double whammy when you're looking at patient outcomes. As far as 
what are the most common questionnaires to administer or maybe ones you should think about. Most common is the DHI, the Dizziness Handicap Inventory, developed in 1990 by Jacobson and Newman. We've definitely talked about this before, but um, (laughs) this DHI assesses the effects of the person's issue, their dizziness or imbalance on their quality of life. And it's composed of 25 questions. It's a scale. You either say no, sometimes, or yes. And an example of the question that may be asked is, does looking up increase your problem? And one thing, you know, there was an interview of Jacobson on an Audiology Online article, and he had mentioned that they really use specifically your problem or the problem because they didn't even want to use the word dizziness that could bias the patient towards how they they view their particular impairment. Right. And so, yeah, this is this is probably the yeah, definitely the most common um, questionnaire that we hand out to dizzy patients. And it's, you know, it has three subscales. It has a functional, emotional and physical subscale. These are questions that are going to tap into different elements of how this impairment or this problem is affecting uh, their quality of life. The DHA has an excellent test retest reliability. Many studies have shown that. Um, and with regard to using it to quantify detectable change or minimal detectable change to, okay, what is significant? Let's say the DHI is handed pre-treatment or post-treatment. Um, there's some studies that show that a, an 18 point difference in the DHI will count as a significant change in that score. That was surprising for me to discover again because either positive or negative. I know I anytime I notice a reduction in a person's self-reported scores, I'm like, it's great. But now it'd be nice to refer to statistics to say this is a significant change. Um, as far as scoring, scoring is super easy. If they answer no, it's a zero. If they say sometimes to the question, it's a two. And if they say yes, it's a four. So your total score would be 100 because there's 25 sub question scale if they said yes on every single question um there's uh, delineations for mild moderate or severe handicap on their life or on their quality of life so 16 is mild 36 is moderate and 54 is severe and this has been correlated with anxiety measures as well you can get tap into those subscales to determine where the patient is having the most impacts of their dizziness which is really helpful yeah and you know with regard to anxiety, if um, because of these correlations have been shown, the total score of the DHI can give you some indication. If somebody's answering yes, 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 <laughs> they may they may be a little anxious with regard to um, the effects of the dizziness that, that the dizziness is having on them, and so that is. Um, another way that this can be used. Definitely. You know, there's been some research. I love this research study by Susan Whitney in 2005. It looked at what some people kind of coined the mini DHI because it's been thought that there's five particular questions on the DHI um, looking at the effect of looking up, difficulty getting in or out of bed, quick head movements, rolling over in bed, and bending over. And the thought is if a patient answers sometimes or yes to those five items, they may um, have BPBV. And there was actually a pretty high incidence of those who had BPBV that answered yes to all of those questions. And the reason I bring that up 
is it's important not only to look at total overall score, but take a look at those subscales, especially at those five items. If they say yes to all five of those, there's a pretty high likelihood that they may have BPBB. So it's kind of a good way to start your case history. You know what direction your history is going to head in if you have a DHI in your hand before you go. So another self-report questionnaire, which is relatively recent, but still by Jacobson and colleagues, is the dizziness symptom profile. Um, so this questionnaire is actually, it actually provides a tool for not only clinicians, but other providers that may not be familiar with vestibular disorders um, all that much, but it, it really helps populate a list of possible diagnoses. And so the patient fills it out and a list of different you, you score you score the different you score the the items and the score calculates what this patient may or may not have as an underlying diagnosis and so the formulation or the development of this study is actually really interesting so it was actually a three phase process and it was first an um, a development of the initial list of questions so they had a list of a whole bunch of questions that they then um, got rid of because they wanted to shorten the list. And so they ended up shortening the list to, I think the final item is, uh, it's a 25 item list um, that tackles or pertains to you know, any certain category. And what they wanted to do was really bring in the gold standard, and that is ear physicians and otologists and ENTs, um, because ultimately they're going to be the one making these diagnoses to, uh, this diagnosis on the patient. And so they brought in these ear specialists and had them determine what the diagnosis of the patient was, and then they compared that to the DSP of what the DSP suggested that diagnosis should be. And, you know, every time that the DSP and the otologist or ENT, anytime that those diagnoses matched, it was considered a hit. Anytime that it didn't, it was considered a miss. And what they ended up finding was that the DSP was really, really close. It was like 70 to 80% of the time it was agreeing with the, with the physicians. And it's an excellent, uh, relatively new tool, but it's a, it's a great uh, way to supplement that case history that you're giving. And technically for significance on this scale, a score of 60 in any category is considered significant. And just for an example of some of the disorders that are indicated um, throughout this questionnaire, there's unsteadiness, 3PV, BPPV, vestibular neuritis, SCV, Nemirs, and vestibular migraine are some of the examples of what possible diagnosis there could be based on what the patient reports. So the third scale that you may have heard of is the HADS, the Hospital Anxiety and Depression. Um, this is 14 total questions, so super quick. They say it takes two to five minutes to administer it. And ultimately, it's an anxiety and depression screener. Um, seven questions for anxiety, seven questions for depression. Um, overall, it's a four-point four scale. Most of the questions are worded with anything from most of the time, a lot of the time, occasionally, or none. 
Um, and some questions ask, you know, I feel tense or round up or I can sit and um, at ease and feel relaxed. So there are these these certain questions that try to tap into these anxiety and depression components. And overall, a score greater than 11 in either category is considered significant. And then the last one, which I was less familiar with, is the NVI, the Neuropsychological Vertigo Inventory. This is pretty new. Do you know how new this is, Danny? Uh, it I came out probably I in uh, 2019, either within the last two years, probably. Oh, it says original yeah. paper 2016, but the English validation was in 2019. So Yeah, the English validation was in 2019, the, I believe the French version, French which, is the, which is the original one. That was, um, yep, 2016. So, again, another new one. Super new. And this is kind of interesting because I feel like it's the first inventory of its kind that assesses the physical, cognitive, and emotional aspects of people with vertigo. It's overall 32 questions, and each have each are a five-point response Likert scale. And this evaluates some different aspects. There's actually 17 total things that it evaluates, but overall attention, memory, emotion, space perception, time perception, vision, and motor abilities, which are super interesting. So, you know, what these these different areas that we're tapping into, why are we going to be concerned with those? Well, we also know that vestibular impairments have shown to affect these, you know, visual spatial memory components. It affects, mm-hmm. you know, areas of the hippocampus. And so having a, a cognitive questionnaire could be really important. And it the questions are kind of interestingly phrased. Like, for example, some of them are labeled as before and after questions. So, like, how was your memory before your balance difficulties versus after? Um, one thing that I think is really great about this scale is it does take into account those patients who would mark yes for everything. So, it's called the distractor subscale, and that accounts for those extremes, the patients who would literally put a four on every single thing on the DHI. This has um, a way to account for that. And um, there have been, there, obviously there's been some papers validating this tool, but um, they did evaluate for effective hearing difficulties and there was no effect shown on those cognitive effects with vertigo on hearing difficulties. They also evaluated for age effect, which it's kind of interesting because they expected that as you age, you would have more cognitive effects on people who report more vertigo, but it was kind of the inverse Probably what they hypothesized was that patients are maybe less active, not working anymore, and aren't experiencing those impacts. So thank you, Liz, for bringing up age, because age is something that we always think about or is always sprinkled on every single thing that we do. Sure. <laughs> um, so there is one thing that I do want to bring bring up with regard to case history and age. So there's an interesting study by Piker and Jacobson in 2014 called Self-Report Symptoms Are Different or Differ Between Younger and Older Dizzy Patients. And so in this study, they, um, they analyzed 233 adults that were referred for vestibular testing, and they they divided them into two different groups based on age. Adults with a mean age of 46 and then older adults with a mean age of 76. And so they had them fill out a structured case history. They had them fill out questionnaires. And um, what they ended up finding was that the younger adults were more likely to report true vertigo 
when compared to the older adults. And additionally, older adults were also more likely to report unsteadiness or tendency to fall. And so one thing about that is despite the lack of vertiginous symptoms that older adults fail to report or report, BPPV was still more common in older adults. So what does that mean? That even though older adults may not report true vertigo symptoms, they may they are more likely to have um, underlying vestibular uh, disorders such as BPPV. So something to keep in mind during your case history. For sure. So in summary, we've gone through quite a bit, a lot more than I thought we would. We'll try to post some resources related to this, but a thorough case history can really help frame not only the hypothesis for what the patient may have, inner ear or not, but also help direct what tests you may be more interested in doing. I know uh, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but you know if a patient is having sound sensitivity complaints or pressure-related complaints, that leads me in a different direction for what tests I want to do. So not only is my suspicion for what disorder they have rising with everything they tell me, but uh, I'm also thinking about what I may want to do with that patient, extra tests I may not do on everybody. And ultimately, that case history along with their questionnaires can help you arrive at the diagnosis and prove that with your test results that you, that you get through testing. So yay for case history and yay for questionnaires. And look, we didn't even need a computer for any of that, right? I know. Just needed some some trees and... This uh... is where the clinician really still comes in. You know, I think that's a a really, really important thing because things are getting more computerized and there's a lot of things that can do what we do in a lot of different ways. But where you will always win is in your case history your ability to interpret the results and to counsel the patient on it. Well, that's it. That is our 12th episode covering. What's interesting is that we Uh-oh. finished <laughs> with the thing we should have started with. We should have started with. <laughs> yeah. 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 That. So, that's so funny, we but it have... just, it's yeah. It, it's almost like we, we ran around and tied the knot. I don't yes. know. Except for we're still going to keep going. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Hopefully you learned a little something, a little tidbit to take back to the clinic with you, take back to the classroom. Uh, We love hearing from you. If you were one of the people we literally just responded to after like 12 days of your DMs (laughs) sitting in our account, we will do better. Uh, But yeah, feel free to send us a message anytime. We do like getting the questions and, and happy to help you navigate what the answer is. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And just to, to piggyback on that, you know, we're, we, we really appreciate everyone that's been following us for this last year. Um, you know, it's been, we're excited to get started again <laughs> in December um, and to come back for season two. We'll see you then. Take care. <laughs>